The audiovisual that we're going to um, experience now was a prayer poem that was suggested by Eileen McGeown, and it also features the voices of quite a few members of the congregation. So um, I hope you enjoy it. Um, please treat this as a prayer with your eyes open. Thank you. Glory to you, my God. For the little one learning to walk, who lets go of her mother's hand, falls, gets up, and starts the adventure all over again. For the youngster on the bike, trying to ride without holding the handlebars, trying 20 times without succeeding. For the adolescent worried over a math problem, but sticking with it, determined to find the solution alone. Glory to you, my God, for athletes who train every day to run faster, jump further, and always higher, to break their own records. For the artists who struggle with stone or wood, colors or sounds, to create new works. For the researchers who study in the shadows, carrying out experiments, striving to unlock the secrets of the world in which we live together. Glory to you, my God. For the miners who extract iron ore from the ground, for the foundry workers and those who make tools and machines. For the architects and for the armies of bricklayers who build houses, cathedrals and towns. For the scholars, engineers and technicians, for the multitudes working with intellect and hands, slowly exploring the world and bringing order into life. For all those committed to the struggle for the development of people and peoples and to the building of a just and peaceful world. Glory to you, my God. For man and woman slowly coming to be out of the immensity of time. Since they emerged from the clay, you call them to stand upright. Since flesh was illumined by the spark of the Spirit, you called them to think, to love, to participate in their own creation. Since you gave the universe into their liberated hands, to take possession of it, to develop and transform it. Glory to you, my God, for this stupendous and marvellous ascent of humankind. For your joy in our growth, for your humility, you who stand back instead of taking our place, for your patience with our slowness, our mistakes and our failures. I give glory to you, my God. Because you created women and men free and worthy to meet you, capable of knowing you and of loving you. Because you didn't think it was demeaning when you yourself became a man in your son, Jesus. Because through him, we can all call you our father if we want to, and one day we can come to you to live in your love and your joy forever. Glory to you, my God. 
you can just hold on to some of those images. I think they'll, I'm not sure which way around it is, maybe they'll illustrate the sermon or the sermon will draw some of those ideas out. But just hold on them in your hearts and in your minds. I'm going to go slightly off script here, very dangerous. Tends to mean serious overruns in church. But I just had that sense reading that first sentence. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you come away with nothing else today, come away with that. If you feel rejected, someone's telling you a failure, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're blaming yourself for something that's happened, if you're filled with regrets, there may be some things you need to do, but there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I think we spend a lot of our time feeling condemned, judged and condemned. And that's the word that God sends to us. In Christ, we are no longer condemned. Paul builds from there in that chapter in Romans 8 all the way through to the future hope, the future glory. If this were a TV show, I guess this would be the bit that we'd have to do recently in Fitzroy, where we kind of get some of what I was talking about last week. But if you remember, started to explore what the nature of the Easter message is for us, what our resurrection hope means. And this, of course, was stimulated by Tom Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. And the key aspect of that was to try and move us on from simply thinking that our ultimate expectation concerns what's going to happen to our souls when we die. Rather, we were looking forward to a new form of physical existence when our present mortality will be cloaked in a new immortality as the final gift of God's grace. But I was emphasizing the idea that this promised new life was physical nonetheless. We looked at Jesus' resurrection and the things that we're told about his new body as some sort of model for what's going to happen to us ultimately. And when's this going to happen? Well, we said it's going to happen when Christ returns. And he's going to finally overthrow all those authorities that oppose God's will. And having subjugated all of those, death will be the last enemy of all, and perhaps the greatest, that will be finally brought under his authority and defeated forever. And having done all this, then Christ will hand back all of that authority, all of the reclaimed kingdom, back to God the Father 
whose it was in the first place. In Romans 8, Paul describes it slightly differently from that description in 1 Corinthians 15. In Romans 8, Paul says, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies. And the phrase Tom Wright has for this is that this isn't talking about going to heaven or hell as a one-stop process. That it's our bodies that will be redeemed, not disembodied souls. Now why does any of this matter? Is this just nitpicking round the edges? Do the details of what we're hoping for in eternity really matter? in terms of how it affects us right now. Well, Paul clearly thought so, because he builds through 1 Corinthians 15 to that message he has at the very end in verse 58, a call to action. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm.